I'm going to invite the rest of you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 15 for our study of God's Word. We have a chapter and a half left of Romans, and then we are done. I was talking to somebody this morning. They said, I remember coming in Romans 1. And I think that was, I don't know how many weeks ago. I think we're like week 58. So uh, the plan after we're done with Romans, I think this summer, um, is to do a series on what the Bible teaches about hell. And uh, you can pray for me. Uh, I, I don't want to preach on that merely intellectually. Um, I just want to have a burden because it's a real issue. It's important. So you can pray for me seriously, personally. Um, and then, Lord willing, we'll do a study of Hebrews, but we'll do big picture of Hebrews in the fall. Uh, we'll do a chapter a week. And uh, that doesn't mean we won't do Hebrews in depth some other day, but I just want to get the bigger picture. So we'll do 13 weeks in Hebrews. Really looking forward to that. And uh, so that's sort of the plan. Romans 15. By the time we get to Romans chapter 15, uh, and we're through with verse 13, which we are through with, uh, really we've, we've covered it. Uh, the essence and the substance of Romans is done when you get to Romans fifteen thirteen, And we looked at that last week. And so... What's happened in Romans from chapter 1 uh, all the way through chapter 15, verse 13, is he's covered what the gospel is and how the gospel works. That would be a great way to summarize the overall issue in Romans is gospel, what the gospel is, and how the gospel works. And we've covered that. So in one sense, we're done with Romans. But we're not done with Romans because we have a chapter and a half left. So what we'll be able to do in the next couple, two, three weeks, as we wrap up Romans, we're going to be able to see more of the personal side. Not that it hasn't been personal, but now it's explicitly personal, and we're going to be able to learn from the Apostle Paul something about the personal side of ministry. And we might want to put it in terms of we're going to learn something about authentic Christian ministry, genuine, legitimate Christian ministry, how you move from the theological side of what the gospel is, how it works. Now he's going to actually engage on a personal level the people he's writing to. And I thought it would be very helpful. It will be helpful for us because we too want to think about what authentic Christian ministry is. My hope and prayer for us is that we would be less and less Christians in name only. That we as a church would be less and less a church in name only. Christian. But we actually would be authentic. That we would be true to Christ true to the name Christian because we are actually doing what Christ would want us to do when it comes to engagement in each other's lives. So looking forward to it. Uh, this morning what you'll be able to do if you want to take notes would be able to write down five characteristics of authentic Christian ministry. Five characteristics, we're going to borrow these from Paul, of authentic Christian ministry. We'll look at 14 through 21 and... Uh, I want to invite you to go ahead and read those verses with me before we actually look at them closer. Let's see Paul's example of authentic Christian ministry. Beginning in verse 14, if you'd follow along with me, he writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. And so says God's holy and inerrant Word. Let's now take a closer look 
let's principalize as we go, as we learn from Paul and this historic account, and let's be able to identify some marks of an authentic ministry. Certainly his ministry would be considered an authentic ministry. So let's learn for ourselves from that. Number one, authentic Christian ministry encourages fruitfulness. Authentic Christian ministry encourages fruitfulness. We're going to see it in him, then we're going to seek to apply it to our lives as individuals and as a church. Notice what he says in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you. Now, even if we stop there, uh, before the next comma goes on. I myself am satisfied about you. If you're a Roman Christian and you hear those words, you are encouraged. He's encouraging them that there's been gospel fruit in their midst, that they haven't been mere professors of faith, that there's actually been fruitfulness. There have been signs of life to the point where Paul says, I myself, with emphasis, am encouraged, he says, or am satisfied about you, which would encourage them. Now, the reason that's so encouraging is because we, we're going to remember now, and invite you to remember and encourage you to remember who Paul is. When he says, I myself, well, your mind should go back to who is Paul, chapter 1, verse 1. He's none other than an apostle which is not a big deal to us because people call themselves apostles on lots of different street corners today. It should be a big deal because an apostle is unique. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 says, an apostle, qualification for an apostle, you, you've seen the risen Christ. Remember, if he's an apostle, that means he has the authority of the one he's an apostle of. Oh, and he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is huge. I realize that we don't want to elevate human beings too high, but we under-elevate what it means to be a true, an apostle, true apostle. If Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he speaks, Jesus speaks. Your whole Bible is red letter. Everything he wrote. He is speaking on the authority of none other than the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So for him to say to you as a Christian, the Roman Christians in this case, I myself, read apostle, am satisfied with you. Context would clearly be the impact of the gospel in your midst. Man, encouragement meters going up. Wow, this is great. This is tremendously encouraging. Then if we move on beyond the, the comma, he says, my brothers. Again, same kind of thing. Encouragement meter goes up even more. He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, he is. And he says, my brothers, we're equal spiritually, even though I have a unique office. That's tremendously encouraging. Now move after the next comma, that you yourselves are full of goodness. That's what he's encouraged about, that they are full of goodness. And it's personal, you yourselves. Now, oh, you know, yawn it off. That was a bad yawn invitation, but... It's ho-hum. If you're, if you're biblically uninformed, that's ho-hum. And most of you aren't. If you've read Romans and, and have an inkling of a memory, that's not ho-hum. That you, Christians, he says, are full of goodness. Remember back in chapter 3 what we learned? Chapter 3, verse 12. No one does good. No, not one. How interesting. That's gospel fruit. He's acknowledging, identifying the fruitfulness of the gospel in somebody's life. He uses a different word, but clearly the concept is intact. As an unbeliever, nothing we do is good. Oh yes, as we would say, there's relative good, but not ultimate good, not absolute perfect motives, not good enough to satisfy a God who's perfectly holy and knows everything. No one does good, no, not one. Gospel impact, Christ righteousness applied to the believer, Holy Spirit indwelled, there's transformationing happening, and now he says, you're full of goodness. Don't you love it? So it's, it's awesome to see the difference. 
You're full of goodness. But that's not all. That's, that's tremendously encouraging. But if we keep reading after the next comma, filled with all knowledge. Not just knowledgeable, filled with all knowledge. Right in the margin. I hope you just wrote Romans 3.12 in the margin. Now you can write Romans 3.11 in the margin. Unbeliever, no one understands. Notice the difference. From no one understands, that is the truth about who God really is because of the perverting nature of sin. We just end up being idolaters. No one understands the true God. To filled with all knowledge. It's amazing what the gospel does. He's seeing what the gospel does in real people's lives and he's affirming it. He's encouraging gospel fruitfulness and I love seeing it right here before our very eyes. So, so much knowledge do they have that's true knowledge about the true God that it says also in our verse, verse 14, and able to instruct one another. You guys get it. You get the gospel you understand who God is. You understand the gospel. You understand how the gospel works. So much so that now you're able to admonish one another. You're able to instruct one another. You guys get it. By now, the encouragement meter should be way, way, way up there. It's helpful. It's good. If we're going to imitate or mimic the Apostle Paul's ministry, which we can't do entirely because we're not apostles, but certainly we could do this. We would want to be encouragers. We would not want to be like people who say, well, you know, if you encourage them, they're going to get a fat head. And, you know, we just need to keep them humble. We would want to be, if we're authentic Christians in Christian ministry, we would want to be characterized by affirming gospel fruitfulness. Remember, we're not not glorifying the person. What we're saying is, look, you get it now. Really, ultimately, what we're doing is glorifying Christ. Because, in fact, the gospel does transform people's lives. What we're doing is recognizing it and saying, that's what it is. It's true, you didn't do any good, and now you're filled with goodness. It was true, you didn't have any true knowledge of God, and now you're filled with all knowledge. And it's showing up in your life. This is a good word for us. This is helpful for us. Maybe helpful for us, too, because sometimes... We only live in the world of Romans 3. And therefore, our conclusion is we would never tell anyone they ever do anything good. What do you think? Do you think Paul understood Romans 3 well enough to be able to say what he says in Romans 15? (laughs) I think he did. It's the same guy. He, yes, understood Romans 3. To the core, but he also understood the rest of Romans 3, which is the gospel which transforms people's lives to the point where he can say, you are full of goodness. Yes, let's keep it in the context. Let's never forget Romans 3, as I think they were actually forgetting. More about that in a moment. But this is helpful for us. This is helpful for us as Christians. It's helpful for us as a church. We need to believe Romans 3. But we need to believe all of Romans 3. And where their gospel is truly effective in a person's life, where there is true saving faith, there is transformation to the point where the Apostle Paul can say, full of goodness, true knowledge of God, translating into impacting us, so we might be able to say to somebody, good job. Good job with that. Really encouraged by what I see going on in your life and seeing fruit in your life. It's great. So blessed by your ministry. Thank you for encouraging me. I see your life transforming. It's amazing how your life is filled with goodness. (gasps) So Paul does. And maybe it would get to the point where we forget about Romans 3 and all we're ever doing is saying things like that and we're out of balance. But we are so far from being there, it's not even funny. (laughs) It encourages gospel-wrought fruitfulness. That's what a mature man's ministry does here. The Apostle Paul, as we're maturing Christians, 
We need to know this and we want to mimic this kind of thing. If we're going to have legitimate ministry, let, let's encourage. Let's encourage more than we do. Hey, I see God working in your life. That's great. Right? Does it make sense? I hope it does because I don't have anything more to say about it. A lot of notes. <laughs> but, you, but do you see how this is an issue? It can be an issue for us because we don't really get it. It can be an issue. We want to pretend like the gospel doesn't change anything. And so we only talk about how depraved everybody is. I'm all for talking about how depraved everybody is, starting with me. But something happens when you become a Christian. And he's affirming that something that's happening, and he's not withholding. Let's move on now. Number two, a second authentic, number two, authentic Christian ministry reminds of foundations. It reminds of foundations. Specifically, gospel foundations. I hope that can go without saying, but I'll say it. Look, look at what verse 15 says. Notice the contrast. Affirming, affirming, affirming. Full of goodness, knowledge. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Okay. Legitimate ministry. Authentic ministry is not going to be beyond reminding people of basic things. Even to the point, did you notice what he says? Written to you. Very boldly. You know, I needed to turn up the volume on the bullhorn. You, your vision has gotten a little blurred in some areas. I know, I know you get the gospel, but maybe, maybe you've started assuming the gospel and it's gotten a little blurry for you in your perspective on how, what the gospel is and how the gospel works. And so I've had to really turn up the volume in some areas in the letter because there are things that you need to be reminded of. So we'll be, get to the application part in a second. But before we do, it's interesting when you read Romans and you hunt, you hunt for what he had to turn the volume up on. What are the bold reminders? I, I know you get the gospel filled with goodness, but there are some things you, you're getting foggy on. And, and I think when you reread through Romans, you look for things because he doesn't spell it out for us. So it's a good exercise. Things that are given a lot of space, a, little, a lot of black uh, ink to, Maybe we'd say those are the bold reminders or some of the things, just the way he says it, you know he's being bold in his reminding. So I would like to highlight at least four of them for you. Maybe there aren't four, maybe there are three, maybe there are more. But when I reread Romans and you say, what are the bold reminders that he has to emphasize? One bold reminder is the severity of sin and understanding the severity of sin if you're going to understand the gospel. If you go back to chapter three, let's just do a, a brief overview to see this is a bold reminder. Romans 1, 2, and 3, he, introduction after the first 17 verses, chapter 18, he starts talking about sin. That's why we have the wrath of God. And he goes on and on and on about sin, 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 sin. Clearly, you're not going to really understand the gospel unless you understand sin. Maybe the Romans had kind of forgotten about it. The low point comes in chapter 3, verse 19. Look there. Romans 3.19, after he's addressed everything, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth, I think this is a bold reminder, every mouth may be stopped. And we say it a little bit differently, a little bit more offensively in our language. Every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world, so this is Jew, this is Gentile. The whole world may be held accountable to God. And then he goes on to talk about sin. This is the final nail in the coffin. After three chapters, he's got to be really, really emphatic and really, really bold. It would seem that the Roman Christians were talking less and less about sin. And they knew the gospel, they knew about sin, but they needed to be reminded boldly. And I would suggest to you that we need to remind ourselves and be reminded at times about different foundational truths, and this might be one of them. Because we know, like it was then, it's not a popular topic to tell people they're not worthy and they don't deserve anything from God other than His judgment. When you start ignoring that and downplaying that, before you know it, you really have lost sight of the glory of Christ and the greatness of His love, what grace really means. You just start using words like grace. I think another bold reminder he gives would be regarding justification. That justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you keep reading in chapter 3, you see this is an emphasis. In chapter 3, verse 21, 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, remember, uh, justification means to be declared righteous. So he's using the same terminology. The righteousness of God through faith. That's what we need. That's what we receive. It receive it through faith based upon the righteousness of Christ because it says in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So he's emphasizing faith and belief. Then he says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified, declared righteous by his grace. Just so we make sure we understand it's only by his grace as a gift. So he's being redundant through the redemption, so it's not our works, it's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. Notice we didn't somehow do this. God put forward as a propitiation or as an atonement. So this is God's work in doing this by His blood, emphasis on Him, so it's emphasis on grace, to be received, not by works, but by faith or by trust. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who tries really hard, works really hard, cooperates with God, no, has faith or trust in Jesus, and then he goes on to unpack it and how it's not based on boasting. Then he goes on to keep emphasizing that. He goes on to keep emphasizing that in chapter 4. He goes on to keep emphasizing that in chapter 5. I suggest to you he had to speak boldly to the point where I'm out of breath giving lots of attention. You guys had gotten blurry in your vision about justification. And if you do that before you know it, you will show yourselves not to be full of goodness and lacking knowledge. Another bold reminder comes in chapter 6, the bold reminder that they'd forgotten that foundational truth, truth that, that, that this doesn't mean we have license to live like we're citizens of hell. Because after all, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It has nothing to do with what I do. It has everything to do with Christ, what Christ does. And Christ work outside of me. Therefore, I can do whatever I want because it's all about His righteousness being credited to me. So I'm going to live like the devil. Then we get to chapter 6. I know this is one of the bold reminders because he says it so boldly, right? What does he say in chapter 6, verse 1? He knows that's where people are going to go and they're thinking that must have been where they were going. What shall we say then? We've got it clear, loud and clear. It's all of Christ. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Bold, 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 by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We can't. So he reminds them boldly of that foundational gospel-centric truth. You died with Christ. You rose with Christ. You live a new life. Maybe one more bold reminder that he gives as far as a foundational Christian truth, and that would be the fact that the gospel provokes radical worship in response. The gospel elicits or provokes radical worship worship which is a life of worship and we saw that in chapter 12 verse 1 and following 12 13 14 15 it's the consequence of the gospel how the gospel works the gospel works saves you only by god's grace only through the work of christ and then it's how do we respond i urge you that's bold double bold i urge you therefore brethren right by the mercies of god according to his free justification is the idea there i urge you therefore brethren by the mercies of god to present your bodies, all of you, it's radical, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's a bold reminder. Its boldness comes out in the fact that he keeps talking about it for chapter after chapter. So, an authentic, genuine ministry is going to affirm gospel fruitfulness. It's also going to remind of foundations. What are the foundations of the gospel? What are the the basic truths about the gospel regarding what it is and how it works? This isn't anything unique to Paul either. Listen to what 2 Peter 1 says. 2 Peter 1.12, Peter writes, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Gospel context. Gospel qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. 
I think it right, Peter says, as long as I am in this body, as long as the Lord gives me breath, as long as my heart is beating, as long as I have a pulse, until the day I die, he says, to stir you up by way of reminder. Gospel context. I'm never going to grow tired. I'm just going to keep preaching the same sermon. In one sense, it's gospel, gospel, gospel. What the gospel is, how the gospel works. And it can actually be in different sermons because there is so much that it touches because it touches everything in life. Remind, 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 remind. Keeps our vision clear so we can have a Christian ministry that is not Christian in name only. Now, one more thing before we move on to number three, and that would be the emphasis that comes in verse 15. Just as a peek, let's just peek ahead where he says at the second part of verse 15, back in chapter 15, because of the grace given me by God. We're going to talk about that in a moment, but I, I just wanted you at least to, to see the connection, to see the close association between very boldly because of the grace given me by God. It's really important because sometimes we think if something is going to be very bold and you're going to tell people the kind of things you're going to tell them in Romans, we're apt to say that wasn't very gracious. And actually, by definition, it's gracious because it comes to Paul, this burden to do this is a result of the grace of God. So by definition, it's gracious doesn't mean we always do it in a gracious way and we should i understand that but they're not mutual exclusives being bold with the truth about gospel realities well paul's doing this because of the grace given to him so it would make sense that these can coexist in the same little universe and it's actually gracious and kind to do this ready to move on all right let's do that well now that our vision is getting clearer and not bold, or excuse me, not blurred because of these reminders. We move to number three. Authentic Christian ministry recognizes stewardships. Authentic Christian ministry recognizes stewardships. Maybe before we read the verse, what's a stewardship? It's a word we don't use that often. Um, Think about in terms of money. Think about it in terms of things given to you, entrusted to you. If something is given to you that's actually not yours ultimately, it's a stewardship. Sometimes we as Christian parents say, because it's biblical, we say children are a gift of the Lord. Children are a gift from the Lord. And then we move on to talk about stewardship. If the Lord gives them to us, then we have a responsibility. They're ours, but in one sense we might say they're not ultimately ours. We've got to be careful. Well, I want to use that word today because it's a helpful word in understanding ministry for Paul. He understood that ministry wasn't his. He understood that it wasn't about him building things for his own reputation. He'd been given a certain ministry, a stewardship, that ultimately belongs to Christ, and so he's going to be careful to handle it a certain way. Let's go ahead and see how that works, beginning in the latter part of verse 15. Because of the grace given me by God, so now it's something given, so now we've got this notion of stewardship, to be a minister, verse 16 says, that means servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I think that's about stewardship. Because again, grace given by God. Okay, to be a servant. So he's not in charge. He's actually a servant involved here of Christ Jesus. It's definitely stewardship. Then he goes on to unpack the focus of his stewardship. He recognizes that it's not about him about something entrusted to him, so he's got to be careful with it. I overused the illustration, but it goes back to me, um, the way I treat my own things, versus if you lend me something, I'm going to probably break it because I'm being so careful, because it's not mine. 
ten times more careful. Well, stewardship entrusted to Paul, he's going to be really, really careful to do what he's supposed to do. That's the idea there, and stewardship comes through in verse 15. But before we move on to try to apply this, re-look at verse 15, and just please notice how fascinating and how vividly Old Testament it is and the sacrificial imagery he employs. I mean, it's pretty radical. It's meant to shock. There's going to be shock value in 16. To be a minister, a servant of Christ, Jesus, to the Gentiles, and then notice... In the priestly service? What? Priestly service? Paul, have you not read Hebrews? What about Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10? It seems to be that we don't have priests anymore. Other than Christ. Here he says, in the priestly service? See, he's, what he's doing is, we'll, we'll, get, we'll keep going with the verse, he's borrowing Old Testament imagery to make his point about stewardship. And this is a little bit shocking, and you say, whoa, thought we left that behind. He's employing that language so we can understand that a priest in doing his priestly duties is very, very serious because he's got a very, very serious stewardship. Let's keep reading it. In the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering, that's, that's, that's priestly again, the offering of the Gentiles... Well, the last part isn't, but the first part, offering, that's Old Testament sacrificial system kind of talk. Maybe acceptable, that's Old Testament sacrificial system kind of talk. That's temple talk. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that too is even temple talk, Old Testament sacrificial system talk. It's meant to get our attention and say, well, that doesn't really belong in in the New Testament. But it does if it's used to illustrate a point. The Lord Jesus Christ gave me a unique ministry to the Gentiles, Paul is saying. And I see myself almost like that Old Testament priest who has the animal to be sacrificed and there are all kinds of very serious rules and regulations as to how this is done. Stewardship. And I've got to get that animal to the altar and have it sacrificed according to to what God says. Stewardship. And here, did you notice? Who's to be offered as a sacrifice? The imagery would have it be the Gentiles. I've got the Gentiles. Kind of like a priest would have the animal to be sacrificed. And my mission in life, my stewardship, is to get the Gentiles to the altar, so to speak to get them from where they are to where they need to be so that they're acceptable, he says, to God. It's vivid imagery. It's vivid. It should go without saying he's not calling himself a priest. It should go without saying this is not meant to be taken literally. This is a horrible verse to try to use to defend uh, some sort of priesthood today. Because if you take it literally, well, you can't take it literally and be anything close to Christian because if you take it literally, you're going to do human sacrifices. The Gentiles are to be sacrificed. He's clearly making a profound, shocking point, but a point about stewardship. I'm as serious about my stewardship that God has given me as an Old Testament priest should have been or was. Taking you where you're given to me, pouring the gospel into you, re-pouring the gospel into you, and re-pouring the gospel into you some more because I, by God's grace, have been entrusted with you and I want to get you to the Lord as an appropriate sacrifice, unblemished. It's good imagery. I like it. Stewardship. There's some fear involved here. Romans chapter 11, verse 13, called Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. He's got this unique stewardship, this unique responsibility, and he sees it kind of like an Old Testament priest to help us to understand how serious he is about it, to have a legitimately Christian ministry. He sees it as a stewardship. 
want to say one more thing before we move on that I think would be helpful. Two more things. Lied, sorry. Back to the very bold thing in verse 15. If Paul were very bold about his own agenda, we would say that's arrogance. Just like if we were very bold about ministry because we're going to continue to perpetuate our traditions here. But if it's a stewardship, from God, God gives him this stewardship God-given stewardship, then it calls for nothing less than boldness. And it's not arrogance, it's faithfulness. Do you see? Because it's not about Him, because it's not about His stuff, it's not about His ministry, it's about what God has entrusted Him. And if God of all gods has entrusted you with something, then you'd better be bold. If it's being watered down or compromised or forgotten or blurred or whatever it is. See, there's a huge difference. The thing would, that would protect us by way of application, if we're going to take this in principle, the thing that would protect us from utter arrogance, which we're not above, would be having it not be about us and our agenda and our tradition and what we want to do. Because then when we're bold, you know what? We are arrogant. But if we can point back to something entrusted, a stewardship, then we not only can be, we should be bold. Because it's a God thing anyway. It's not about Pat or you or me. And that begs a question. What, if anything, have we been entrusted with? It's an important question. I'm trying to, to hopefully model this. I'm trying to be careful as we work through this passage that has a lot of historical groundings trying to be careful to not have this all equal, we're all apostles. Because we're not. We don't meet the qualifications. I'm trying to be careful not to draw one-to-one correlation and hopefully model good Bible interpretation here without saying it's all historic. It has nothing to do with us. So I'm trying to say, this is Paul. He's unique. But by way of principle, how might we apply these things? What have we been entrusted with? Here's where I'm going to go to answer the question. I'm going to go to books in the Bible like 1 Timothy, written to a church, not to apostles. 2 Timothy, written to a church, not to apostles. Titus, written to a church, not to apostles. I'm going to go even further than that. I'm going to go to, for example, a great place, more high ground, Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, the seven churches. What makes Jesus happy about a church and what makes him upset? I'm going to go to places like that and I'm going to learn things like in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. All right, now I know where we are as far as what stewardship have we been entrusted with? And I can have a certain confidence. It might be like Paul. might not be exactly like Paul. But it ends up being this this ministry of gospel-centric promotion and defense. Read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. It's written all over the place. You'd even see it in Revelation. So that 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse, I think it's verse 15 off the top of my head, the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. That's a good place to start. Pillar meaning we uphold it for everyone to access. We're not hiding it. We hold the gospel out there. We hold the truth of the gospel out there. It's great commission kind of flavored. For everybody, because they need to believe in Christ. Get the truth out there. And then the support, the buttress, as some of your translations say, and that's the, the foundation, that's more the defensive side of things. And in First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, you see promotion and defense of the gospel. So when we need to apply this and apply the principle and say, let's learn from Paul. He had a legitimate, authentic Christian ministry, not a name only. And we want to have the same thing. Well, it means we're going to recognize our stewardship. What is our stewardship? What's been given to us? I know the truth of the gospel has. And so we want to know the truth of the gospel and we want to promote it and we want to defend it. And certainly there are other things, but even the other things are going to relate somehow to either what the gospel is or how the gospel works. This is great. I I love this text. I love where it takes us. I love having to think through this stuff. 
We have a stewardship. It's not about a trend. It's not about a gimmick. It's not about trying to figure out the next thing we need to do to draw a crowd. Stewardship. This is what Paul was given. And so he saw himself as the sober-minded, knees-knocking priest. Got to get it to where it needs to be. So it's pleasing to God. It's good. It's a good image. Keeps us from having an identity crisis. He clearly didn't have one because he had a stewardship from God, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe one more thing. The second thing, maybe it's third by now. I don't know. Um, just at the very end there, I don't want to. I don't want to pass it up. He says at the end of verse sixteen, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. These, these markers are all over the place. But he's, he's careful to make sure he includes these markers. That this isn't based upon his own efforts alone. This isn't somehow what he produces because he knows the right answers. Because he does know the right answers. He's going to get it to the altar, sanctified, ultimately in the end by the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Spirit uses means like Apostles and like Christians and like churches. But it is helpful to remember this is a Holy Spirit driven kind of thing. And maybe to make one more connection, still on the same point, so I'm not a complete liar. Remember that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. And so if this is happening by the power of the Spirit, certainly it's not going to be divorced from the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. So if we're going to have a Holy Spirit sanctification going on as a result of ministry, that just, that just assumes it's going to be a biblical ministry. Because the Spirit of God isn't going to do something to contradict Himself. So we go, again, that's why we go to 1 Timothy. That's why we go to 2 Timothy. That's why we go to Revelation. That's why we go to other places as well. But it's helpful to see this is a Holy Spirit thing. Let's move on to number four. Authentic Christian ministry, number four, boasts in Christ. It boasts in Christ. 17 says, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud. Or as one translation says, I have reason to boast of my work for God. Again, you take that out of context and you think, what? This doesn't sound like the guy that wrote Romans. But if it's all because of Christ, even as he says, in Christ Jesus whether he's talking about himself because he's in Christ and so any good ultimately gives credit to Christ or he's talking about them in Christ so any ultimate good ultimately gives credit to Christ or it's even bigger than that, they're all in Christ. That provides a legitimacy for boasting. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud, a reason to boast of my work for God. It's a boasting ministry, but it's not self-boasting. Look what we've done. It's boasting in Christ. And that's what a legitimate ministry is going to do. 18 says, For I will not venture to speak of anything. Here's the negative side. I dare not open my mouth to talk about anything. Here's how I can boast in this ministry. Anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. I, he's saying, I dare not say anything about anything successful that doesn't have everything to do with Christ and the Spirit of God applying it. And so I say, look what God has done. It's all legitimate, full of goodness, all knowledge. It's because it's in Christ. It's awesome. Ministry of boasting. Not a ministry boasting in self. Can you imagine if Paul would somehow hear that we would build St. Paul's Cathedral? You've got to be kidding me. Wait till, if we do a church plant, wait till I'm dead to call it St. Peter's. St. Patrick's once a year on, never mind. I mean, just think, and that's trivial and that's pretty canned, but just, just think what he's saying. 
It is so about Christ. It is so always and ever about Christ. And so, you know what? I boast in this great ministry that changes people's lives to the point where no one does good and now they're filled with goodness. But it's because of Him. Dare I speak that it have something to do with me in and of myself. This is so good for us to see what an authentic Christian ministry is. It's so much about Christ. You might think, would this guy just stop talking so much about Christ? But not if you're a Christian who's been transformed by the work of Christ. You say, I totally get it. Here's a helpful quote. Even the extraordinary... This is about verse 19. Even the extraordinary signs and wonders of an apostle came with a pronounced emphasis on him being an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ was the object of magnification. Isn't that good? Even the extraordinary things that he did as, a, as an apostle, unique to the apostles, they were meant to show that he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Legitimate guy. And so when people saw these amazing things happen, they may have misinterpreted them, but he certainly didn't want it to be that way. Those things were happening to point to Christ. It is so incredibly easy to make ministry about us. And I chose that word incredibly easy on purpose. I try not to use the word incredible in sermons. Jesus is incredible. Well, that's a bummer. I would rather say Jesus is credible. <laughs> Eyewitnesses saw him raised from the dead. I realize that's just how we talk. Maybe I'm too much of a literalist. It is incredibly easy for us to make ministry about ourselves. It is. Because God uses human instruments. And so you preach the gospel to your loved ones and to your friends. And sometimes they respond and believe the gospel. And look what you did. Or, look how God uses the preaching of His Word, even through people like me. But it's so easy to kind of get it half-cocked. Or you proclaim the gospel to someone you love very much, and they respond and persecute you. And it's so easy to make it about you. Instead of being counted worthy to suffer for the name. It's just easy to have it be about your favorite Bible teacher or the person who preached the gospel to you that led to your conversion, or the person who really helped ground you in the gospel and how the gospel works, like in Romans. If we can learn from Paul, authentic Christian ministry is going to be one that tries to deflect that. Now, please don't get unbiblical on me and say that I'm never going to tell anybody they did a good job. <laughs> it's in the same text where he's telling people they're doing a good job. complicated the key is, is to keep looking to Christ keep being boldly reminded sometimes about what the basics are so we can keep sense of it all pick favorite Bible teachers who, who are people that don't keep pointing to themselves or they're the hero in all their illustrations pick favorite Bible teachers who keep pointing you to Christ Yes, show honor, because that's biblical. I understand all that. I don't know how many of you saw that interview recently um, of David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, it was posted on the OBC blog. You can look at it if you don't subscribe to the blog. Do. Um, it was unique because I've never seen an interview of Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones is famous British preacher. He's actually Welsh, but he was in London for no quite a number of years. Died, I think, in the early 80s. Books still in print, still very influential. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, there was this interview posted of him and uh, as a video. I've only seen photographs, listened to sermons. 
But it was a great, great interview. Watch the interview because he deflects the praise or he, he deflects the, 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 the focus on himself in a great way that doesn't seem fake. I love the interview. I just thought I want to learn from this elder statesman Christian just how to respond to questions. It was about Christ. It was about the Word of God. It's just fascinating to watch. The doctor, as he was called, as, as busloads and busloads of people would go and go to hear him preach, and it was always about the doctor, Mr. Influential, Mr. Brilliant. And you don't get that sense at all when you see the interview. There, one illustration in the whole sermon. Uh, I pretty much failed preaching class today because uh, you only got one illustration, I suppose, and uh, hope that's okay. <laughs> Maybe maybe one text before we move on to number five would be Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's Paul. I'm a boaster, all right. We should have a braggart ministry. We're just boasting all the time to the point where maybe people would say, who do you think he is, God or something? You know, it's kind of attention he gets. Okay, number five, and we'll wrap things up. Authentic Christian ministry follows the script. It follows the script. You'll see what I mean in a second. I think Paul followed the script given to him. He didn't veer from it. That's what kept him distinctly Christian. Verse 19 goes on to say, So that that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, it's about 1,500 miles or short of that, a broad region, I'm told that's former Yugoslavia. So I, I, I went all the way around and he says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. That's where I want to say he followed the script. Now we've got to do some systematizing here based on what we know Paul writes in other places, based upon the big picture. He's not saying everyone who needed to hear the gospel did. Because there were people who still needed to hear the gospel. So, what does he mean? We have to guess a little bit. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. It would seem that what he means is, I did what I was told to do by Jesus. I did what I was called to do. He told me, here's what I want you to do, and I followed the script. To the point where, we do know there were churches established. Good, sound churches They can be stabilizing places for believers to go as they're converted. 20 says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. 21, But as it is written, quoting Isaiah 52, 15, Those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. I personally don't think that what he means is this, for this to be a timeless principle mandate that all Christians after him must follow, or even during his time, that you can only ever go preach, to the, preach the gospel where the gospel has not been heard before. That's a really important thing to do. We want to do that. That's biblical. But I personally don't think he's saying, if the gospel's already gone there, you can't go there. Hands off. I think that's what he is saying for himself, in essence. The focus of my ministry, what Jesus Christ, the script he's given to me, what he's called me to do is to go where it hadn't been before so that churches are established. Because otherwise, things he would say in other places wouldn't make sense. Like 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. You do see complementary kinds of ministries going on. Even Romans is rather interesting because Paul didn't plant that church and yet he's helping them. So where I end up landing on this is I think what he's saying is I did what Jesus told me to do. We don't have anything in the white spaces explaining exactly where this happened, exactly how this happened, but what we can have confidence in is the fact that this is what he was supposed to do and he's clearly saying I did what I was supposed to do based upon the orders of Christ. And I think that's the the gist of, of what we should take away from this as well. He followed the script. 
He did what he was told to do. By way of principle, we would say, well then, how, how can we follow the script? I think it would be an error to say we can only ever tell the gospel to people who haven't heard it before. I don't think that's what he even wants us to walk away with by way of principle. What is our script? What is the Lord Jesus Christ called, here we go, the church to do? Well, he certainly called us to be the pillar and the support of the truth, the gospel truth. He certainly called us, and there's, there's great commission implications in that, so we're now, we're now back to that. I'm now back to going First Timothy, Second Timothy. I almost said Third Timothy. Because <laughs> I use it as a joke sometimes. <laughs> Titus, Revelation, the rest of Scripture to know who God is. But when it comes to our distinct mission, I'm going to go to those places. What's our script? You've got to follow the script. If we're going to say we're Christians and not just say we're Christians, we're actually going to reflect Christ in our Christianity. We're going to do what He says. We're going to be faithful to what He says we're called to be and what we're called to do. I want to end by highlighting the word I've been using a lot today, and it's the word authenticity. And I chose it purposefully because it's a good word, but I chose it purposely because it's a timely word because it's one of the most often used buzzwords in our church era. It's used like few other words in churchianity. It's used outside of the church too, I know. Authenticity. That what you hear again and again and again is a call for authentic Christianity. We need to return to authenticity, authentic living, authentic Christianity. And we of all people, I would say, should be at the front of the line. And maybe this is happening because so many people say they're Christians and then don't live like it. Maybe it's because of all the scandals that are so publicized, because it looks so good on the outside and underneath. It's a tragedy. So I welcome it. But many times today, at least in church circles and church publications, authenticity, to be authentic, basically, translation is, admit your failures, and your utter lack of answers. Because we're authentic. I don't mind admitting failures. That's authentic, because you acknowledge that you don't have it all together. It's more the latter part that's so troubling and anti-Christian. When you say you don't have the answers. Okay. That's good to a degree because it's humble to say, I don't have all the answers. I'll say that. But the emphasis is, in essence, we don't have any answers. That's not authentic. That's not authentic Christianity. That's not helpful. To only ever ask questions and not give any answers is not distinctly Christian. It's not authentically Christian. It's not helpful. Quite frankly, it's not humble, it's prideful to assume that God doesn't give enough clarity in His Word word, and He lacks the ability to communicate so that we can know nothing. What an insult that He gave us this book and the Spirit of God to bring illumination. So I chose this word purposely today in light of what authentic is defined as, at least in part. By definition, authentic is that which is true or legitimate. What we want is to have an authentic ministry who, yes, asks questions, who, yes, sometimes says we don't know the answer to the question, who, yes, says we have, we have faults and, and we're not perfect either, but also the, a ministry that is true, true to the Christian scriptures, true to the gospel, true to the truth, because we're called to be the pillar and the support of the truth. A ministry that is genuine. How about genuinely Christian following the script encouraging fruitfulness gospel fruitfulness being very bold at times when it comes to the fundamentals and basics and those kinds of things let's be authentic learn that from Paul pray with me and asking for help God we would want to be authentic
we would want to acknowledge that you and you alone know everything. You and you alone are all wise. But we do want to also acknowledge the fact that you've revealed yourself in a way that can be understood. Lord, help us to be people who would boast in Christ and again and again and again point to the cross. Point to the resurrected Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law on behalf of everyone who would ever believe. To point to Jesus who right now is seated next to you. There on our behalf. A gospel reality. And Lord, may the world be a different place. May it be filled with people who sing the hallelujah chorus in the truest sense of the word. Giving praise and glory and honor to you, the one who is worthy of our authenticity. In Jesus' name, amen.